Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. However philosophy was expressed in the past, in the last analysis, it was a struggle for truth. But today, we are often told that there is no such thing as truth. The postmodernists rail against essentialism and generalizations. But generalization is the basis of all ideas and human consciousness. A more interesting question will be, what is the content of our generalizations? And what do they correspond to in the external reality that we experience? In this talk from the 2022 Marxist Winter School, Hamid Alizadeh, editor of In Defense of Marxism, discusses what is truth and is it possible to know it. Thank you, Alain. Um, so, can you hear me? Hello? Are you there? Or am I just imagining this? Uh, now, most people wouldn't ask themselves this kind of question. Within modern academia, that's not necessarily the fact. In fact, in 2019, at a university in Edinburgh, uh, a group of scientists set, up, set about the, uh, the, the, to prove, remember this word prove, that, is, that at a subatomic level, a quantum level, there are no such thing as objective facts. And that the facts here are determined by the observer. And I guess they, they got the, the, the result they hoped for, so maybe that proves something. <laughs> but this, uh, this so-called study builds on what's called the, the Copenhagen interpretation, which is the most prominent theory of quantum uh, physics today, uh, which, which on the basis of, of the, the particular complications regarding the measurements of subatomic particles, has questioned that objectivity and causality at all exists in nature. So, so, so what they say is that the world that we experience does not exist independently of our subjective viewpoints. And as odd, as odd as this might seem, this is a dominant trend within large parts of science and in particular in theoretical physics. Uh, within philosophy and the social sciences, this is closely related to the conclusions of, of the postmodernist and the positivist trends. According to these people, our sense experience and the conclusions that, that we draw from them are purely subjective. In other words, they're inherently flawed because they are affected by our limited subjective viewpoint. So, so in the end, we cannot they say, form an objective picture of the world. Now, the problem with this idea is that it, it leads to absurd conclusions. Because if you deny objectivity, you cannot prove the existence of anything or anyone beyond our ideas. And everything is reduced to the so-called individual experience. And of course, this is a very convenient idea for the ruling class, which is, which is why it's promoted everywhere. Because it not only denies that we can understand the world, it also denies that we can fundamentally change it. The only change we can hope for is to change ourselves. In other words, we and our ideas are the enemy. We are the cause of all misery, all the misery that we see around the world, not the ruling class and not the capitalist system. Now, in 1936, Pasquale Jordan, who was a German scientist and a full-blood Nazi, he attended a meeting of the people behind this so-called Copenhagen interpretation of physics. And this is what he wrote back to his, his buddies back in Berlin. He said, 
Modern physical knowledge, i.e. The, the, the Copenhagen interpretation, is diametrically opposed to the most popular centuries-old scientific thesis of the materialistic worldview. This modern scientific development and, it, and the uneasiness and concern it aroused in the materialistic camp deserves careful observation from a political point of view as well. Of course, the defeat of Bolshevism which is now threateningly raising its head again amongst various neighboring peoples, is primarily a matter of political decision-making and ideological and blood-based fighting power, which cannot be replaced by scientific evidence. Nevertheless, it seems to be a significant sign of the times that the materialistic worldview, viewed as a scientific theory, is being exposed as untenable and contrary to scientific knowledge, precisely in those areas of science which since the Renaissance have been considered its safest domain. Now, <laughs> this representative of the ruling class is making a very, uh, well, correct observation. That the class struggle and the struggle between idealism and materialism are thoroughly intertwined, and that they are now for the first time being fought within the field of science itself. And although these kind of subjectivist ideas claim to be radical and nuanced, as we can see, they can have extremely reactionary consequences. And they negate all of science and rational thought, which is why, as Marxists, we must, we must wage a determined struggle against them. Now, we believe that there is only one world, one objective reality, which we as humans are a part of, a material reality uh, Uh, and our senses and activities are not some kind of wall separating us from the object, object, objective world. They, they are the way in which we experience and understand the world. As the saying goes in English, the proof of the pudding is in, the eat, is in eating it. In other words, through our activity, through trial and error and experimentation and observation, we can learn to understand the world and the laws governing it. Now, it's correct that as individuals, we do have a subjective and one-sided view of the world. We all have strengths and weaknesses and, and different backgrounds, which condition our actions and, and our interpretation of what we see around us. Now, when, when I'm interacting with a dog, I might see just a friendly companion. Some of you might see a dangerous and vicious animal. And billions of other people will have more or less different views than us, based on their interactions with, with dogs. But it's precisely the interaction of all of these views, on the basis of trial and error, that, that a complete and objective concept of a dog is synthesized and refined generation after generation. You see, for the petit bourgeois academic, Only the I exists. But in order to understand the world, we must not only assume that I exist, but also that you exist as a part of the objective world which exists independently of my ideas and senses. And that through my activity, I'm able to know and understand this objective reality. Of course, inadvertently, these academics already admit to this. Because they can't stop writing this nonsense about the subjective nature of the objective world for people who presumably live and exist in this objective world independently of them. The ideas are not individual phenomena. They're social phenomena. They're developed over the course of human history and they're by ve their very nature general. Now, it's true that our ideas are not absolute in the sense that we will never be able to explore the whole universe, which is infinite. 
But it doesn't mean that the universe is unknowable. Knowledge itself is this infinite process from the unknown to the known. What we do not know, what we don't know today, we will learn to know tomorrow. But at the same time, every field that we learn to master leads us on to new and deeper fields for us to discover. You know, the, the old uh, Ptolemaic astronomy is often ridiculed because it believed that the Earth was at the center of the universe. But that was a huge step forward for humanity. Because for the first time, mankind took a systematic and scientific approach to the universe around us. And it developed maps and, and uh, theories and calculations, which some, some of which are still valid within certain limits to this day. But nevertheless, because of its own internal contradictions, it was bound to decline and give way to the Copernican view of the universe, which, which is this uh, sun-centered universe. <laughs> the Copernican revolution didn't discard or just cancel out or throw out uh, the Ptolemaic system as a whole. It was itself a direct result of the achievements of Ptolemaic astronomy, which, which organized science as astronomy as a science and developed it to, to such an extent that it prepared the path for its own downfall. And again, the Copernican system in developing science prepared its own downfall. And it was negated by modern astronomy, which, which stand at, stands at an even higher level. But as I said before, in spite of all this, to this day and, and to a limited extent, some of Ptolemy's achievements are absolutely valid today and also Copernicus's. But in a relative form within the broader modern theories. A modern astro astronomy itself has achieved unimaginable things, but today it is also entering into a crisis. There are huge discrepancies within the most prominent model of the, the so-called Big Bang Theory, which claims that nature and time and being ha had a beginning. Um, and this theory itself stands in the same relation to modern astronomy as the Earth-centered theory stood to the whole of the Ptolemaic system. And at a certain stage, this theory itself will inevitably be overturned and the true achievements of modern astronomy will be put in a context of a more advanced theory. So that, and, and that's the infinite process of knowledge. What is the absolute truth today will become a relative truth within a deeper truth tomorrow. Now, yeah. Now, at the center of this development is, is, the, is humanity's ability to general conceptual thought. But nowadays, you're, you're almost not allowed to use the word general. It's become like an insult at, in the universities. How many times have we not been told as Marxists that, oh, oh, you can't generalize? Because supposedly reality is too complex and nothing is perfectly identical. No particular individual thing fits perfectly within the general concepts that we form. And of course, there's also going to be some, some who fall in between the categories. And therefore, according to these people, generalizations are at best of limited use. Now, of course, we would agree that some generalizations can be wrong and they can have conse bad consequences. Like if I said that all colonial people are lazy or that all Westerners are imperialists, that would be wrong. But if you take the fact that, that some generalizations can be wrong to mean that you cannot generalize at all, then you're making the crudest and worst generalization of all. In, in fact, it's impossible for human beings not to generalize. If you didn't generalize, you couldn't say a single word because every word is a generalization. And one thing that these people never lack uh, are words. Now, 
when we look at the world immediately, we see, we see a whole series of, of familiar things. You know, th this is a cow, this is a person, this is a rock. But if we take a closer look, we, we suddenly realize that things are not that simple. No two cows are alike. No two rocks are alike. They're all different from each other. And they're all in a state of constant change. And so it would seem as if the concept that I had of a cow and a person and a rock would have been dissolved. And, and that's where modern bourgeois philosophy stops. But, but we have to trace this process further, this, this thought further. Because it's an undeniable fact that any child could tell you that within all of these different phenomena that we see every day, which, which are all coming into being and passing away, there's something constant. In the billions of, of different human beings, there's, there's, there is nevertheless something identical. There is an essence that, that persists through each new person who's born. Now, according to, to, to the Augustinian philosophy of the Catholic Church in the, in the Middle Ages, essences or, or universal archetypes of things existed in the mind of God. You know, there would be an essence of a cow and a human and a rock and so on. And he would somehow um, shape the cows and the, and the people and the rocks of, of our world according to these. Now, modern day... Uh, subjectivist thinking has a lot in common with this type of thinking, although they would vehemently deny this, because according to them, the 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 uh, the, um, the social and natural phenomena do not have an essence in themselves. Instead, their essences are made out of made up in our minds and extrapolated over the world. In other words, our subjective concepts shape the objective world. And, uh, and for, for instance, when we make, when we formulate theories or through our language, this goes against all of human experience. Because even a cow knows roughly what, what grass is and what is grass and what is not grass. Even though every blade of grass is quite unlike any other. And apparently they can even distinguish between different sorts of grass and eat what they prefer first. So even, even animals, at least in a very primitive way, can form general conceptions of the phenomena that they experience. But they are not making up an essence of grass and then imposing it on random indeterminate things. But it's, but it's over the course of the history of their evolution, they've been con con conditioned to seek out this particular plant. Now in, in cows, this is not a conscious process, but in human beings, it is. The, 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 the point is that the general concepts that we form are not arbitrary. They reflect the fact that nature itself self-organizes in recurring pattern, patterns at all levels. In other words, the, the, this essence of things does not exist separately from individual things. It's nothing but the sum total of relations making up each phenomenon. And it only exists through each individual instance of these phenomena. And when we generalize, this is what we seek to uncover. And we can even say that on this basis, the general is in fact a higher form of truth than knowing the, the individual itself. Because it gives us an insight into the dynamic, not only of one individual thing, but all similar individual phenomena. Now, for instance, medical science is, is based on the study and treatment of billions of individual human beings. On the basis of, uh, of, of these uh, studies and activities, it's reached an understanding of many of the general mechanisms that maintain our body. And it's, and it's only on the basis of this general understanding 
that each different human being can go to the doctor today and be fairly certain of receiving the treatment and the help that, that, they, that they need. But our general concepts do not represent something separate from the individual things, but what is essential to them. Of course, then we have to ask, what is essential to things? Now, now in, in a lot of scientific fields, we see that uh, things are kind of uh, classified according to their external traits. A human, uh, for instance, could be classified as something consisting of uh, two arms, two legs, a head, you know, and so on. Now, this method of dividing things up in the parts they're made of can be useful to a certain extent. But if we put together an assembly of all the limbs of a human being, we will not have a human being in front of us. And furthermore, not all people would have all of these limbs. Some people would, 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 would lack some of them. So while this method of, of classification, so to say, is useful for dealing with simple daily day things, problems, but if we want to understand complex phenomena, we have to go further. We could say, well, humans are bipeds with the ability for rational thinking, uh, uh, rational and conceptual thought. That would be a deeper form of understanding because it would deal with the abilities of humans arising from their activity and it would put human beings in relation to other, other animals and other creatures. But it still, it still wouldn't tell us the full story. And in order to because in order to fully understand what a thing is, we would need to understand the underlying principle behind its development, which, which gives rise to the totality of its existence. Uh, with, with all of the activities and abilities and relations that it, that it has. In other words, we need to understand the lawfulness behind its development. Now, this is again a point of contention that we have with, with, the, with a big part of modern philosophy. The idea that nature and society are inherently lawful. Now, one of the most prominent philosophers of, uh, of science, Karl Popper, he put forward this idea, which is, which is uh, in one, one shape or another, one of the significant trends without, within the philosophy, philosophy of science today. Now, now, he said that in the final analysis, no theory can be proven to be true for all, for, sorry, for all times. Because even under the best and most controlled conditions, we could not guarantee that an action would produce the same result every time we performed it. And on, on this basis, he concluded that all scientific theories in the last analysis were just speculation and that from our observations, we cannot deduce any lawfulness in nature, i.e. that there are no natural laws, essentially. Now, it's correct that within many fields of science, such as neurology or psychology or quantum mechanics, we're still in the very, very early stages of, of development. And many, if not most, of our theories are more like hypotheses and they're subject to improvement. But that only means that we, we have not understood the full extent of the laws operating within these fields. To say from that that there is no lawfulness, uh, uh, that no lawfulness exists, that would mean raising our ignorance to our main principle. And it goes against all of human experience. Without laws of nature and society, we couldn't do anything. Without the laws of classical mechanics, we couldn't drive or bike or fly. Without the laws of chemistry, we couldn't digest what we eat. Without the law of gravity, we couldn't, we couldn't walk around without flying away. In fact, we couldn't even exist as solid bodies. The point is that if we want to achieve our goals, we need to understand these laws. But... Um, 
within again within academia we're often told that we shouldn't take this lawfulness for granted because in fact everything if not at least many things are possible and um yeah we could say that uh, in abstract uh, everything is possible tomorrow the earth could be swallowed up by the sun because there are two bodies with enormous gravitational force and the earth is a smaller one which makes it a possibility Yes, but that's only one side of the equation. Because on that account, you could just as well say that everything is impossible. Because there are always contravening, contradictory factors. And then we could, we could just as easily say that tomorrow the Earth will, is going to fly away into outer space. Because there are powerful centrifugal forces pointing it away from the Sun. But it's precisely the combination of these contradictory forces which results in the Earth's orbit around the Sun. You see, you can always highlight one side of things to to score a point, but things are fundamentally many-sided, and everything is a result of the interpenetration of contradictory factors. A circle is composed of a center and a circumference. These are two diametrically opposing elements. Nevertheless, they're, they're, they're necessary for the circle to exist. A triangle is composed of straight lines and edges. An atom is composed of negatively and positively charged protons and and electrons. And life itself is driven by two fundamentally opposing forces. First of all, there is a tendency to die and pass away. And secondly, you have a tendency to maintain yourself as efficiently as possible against death, and that in a constantly changing environment. And that's the fundamental principle behind Darwin's theory of evolution. Those organisms which can most easily adapt and resist death will survive and those that cannot will die of course there are many other intervening laws in biology this is the simple principle which propels the development of all of the varied life on our planet at all levels of nature there is it is the interpenetration of opposite elements and forces which drive development and and the result of the inner dynamic of these tendencies that's what we call lawfulness or necessity which is the, the the philosophical term for it now our academic friends think that uh, thinking in terms of possibilities makes them nuanced and open-minded but this is a this is a this speculation this type of speculation is just a poor uh, one-sided and abstract form of thought because uh, trying to find lawfulness is, is a far far richer form of thinking because it takes into consideration all of the possibilities all of the sides of, of a phenomena. The lawfulness is, is nothing but the inner dynamic of, of all of these sides, i.e. The, the totality of the relations of a phenomena. And from that point of view, everything is not at all possible. And this is the problem with modern philosophy, is that it doesn't recognize that not only do, do uh, opposites exist, coexist, but that they necessarily interpenetrate each other. They're, they're part of the same. And again, when we talk about lawfulness, they point to the fact that, well, out there in the real world, is full of, there's full of accidents, meaning things that might or might not have happened. But the problem is that they're looking for a mechanical and linear lawfulness. You know, event A happens, then event B must happen immediately. People are poor, there must be a revolution. And, and because it doesn't happen, they say, oh, no, there's no such thing as lawfulness. Everything is random. But that's, that's not how development works. Real development is not linear and it's not mechanical. In reality, you can have periods where on the surface of things, things can appear quite accidental and unlawful. But underneath the surface, contradictions are being prepared and accumulated. 
and until you reach a tipping point where quantity becomes quality, where the, where the, where the pent-up contradictions reach a certain stage where there is, a, there is a qualitative change in the situation. And in this situation, you can have an accidental event bringing out all of these underlying uh, uh, contradictions to the surface. In other words, accident and necessity are not two opposite uh, phenomena. Accident expresses the underlying necessity. Now, let, let's take a look at the, uh, the present crisis, for example. We're, we're constantly being told that this is the COVID-19 crisis. Yes, on the surface of things, that's correct. It seems to just be an accidental crisis. Well, yes and no. <laughs> you see, all the prerequisites to deal with this crisis relatively quickly exist. In theory, you could have large-scale international lockdowns, strengthening of the healthcare system. You could pull together uh, you know, all international vaccine research and production. Along, and at the same time, you could have an international mass vaccination program. And you could have kept the human cost to a fraction of what it has been. In other words, the whole thing could have been stopped in its tracks. But that was not possible because of the enormous contradictions within the capitalist system. So the, the function of this accident, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, which might or might not have happened, was not so much to be the crisis itself, but to bring to the surface a crisis which had been prepared in the whole of the past period. And of course, once it had come to the world, it itself, COVID, also became a part of the crisis, it became kind of the, the form of the crisis, you can say. And it will continue to be a drag on the world economy for, for many years. And, uh, and it will be a factor shaping the consciousness of the working class for the whole of the next period. Now, they saw the greed and the cynicism behind all of the actions of the ruling class. And they're not going to forget it. Look at this uh, so-called freedom, was it freedom convoy? Is it freedom caravan, I, I keep saying? This is also an accident in many ways. Yes, the people behind it are counter-revolutionaries because there's no true working class leadership taking up the struggle against the establishment. So I was supposed to say, but because there is no such thing. <laughs> uh, this, in, in a temporary and distorted and confused manner, this has come to express the anger of some layers of the working class. Yes, but that's not the end of the process. The contradiction has not been solved yet. And in the future, events will necessarily convince the working class of the gulf between its own interests and the interests of these demagogues. So, in other words, what we're seeing now is only the beginning of the process. It's the early stages of the process of class struggle, which in the future will necessarily give way to higher and higher class consciousness amongst the working class. Now, had COVID not been around, this crisis would still have come sooner or later. Because, and, and the class anger that we see would also have expressed itself sooner or later but they would have taken a different form because what they what they fundamentally express is the crisis of capitalism a system which is in, in a complete dead end so again we can see that accidents and necessity are not two ex mutually exclusive factors they interpenetrate each other necessity expresses itself through accidents 
The world is not a completely arbitrary and chaotic place, but it's also not a clockwork universe where everything is determined in advance. There's lots of accidents and random, random occurrences. But the point is to dive under the surface of things and recognize the necessity, the lawfulness which is reflected by these. And it's this necessity which starts as an underlying contradiction, but which will sooner or later resolve itself and prove to be the real essence of things. So, as you can see, we, we've entered a higher form of conceptual thought, a higher form of generalization, higher than, than just, based, uh, uh, just classifying things according to their parts, and higher than listing the abilities of, 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 of things uh, and their relationship to other things. Now, this, for, this form of generalization sees things from the point of view of the totality of their relations, which results in the underlying principle behind their development. So it, it, it results in their lawfulness. And it's, and it's precisely this lawfulness which expresses itself in all of the particular and individual forms that things take. Now, necessity and, uh, and nature uh, is, is not something static. Things are always in a state of uh, change and flux, of coming into being and passing away. But this is not a mechanical sort of development. A human, for example, doesn't exist in a miniature form inside a fertilized egg, which then grows and becomes bigger and bigger until it, it becomes an adult. No, the, the process of development itself is contradictory and it goes through different stages. Each of these stages negate each other, that is, they... Uh, uh, they replace each other, but at the same time, they presuppose each other. So first you have a, uh, the egg, which is then negated by the fetus. Then you have the gradual development of the fetus within the womb, which, which reaches a stage where it will have to be born in order to continue its development. The baby negates the fetus, uh, and then it goes through childhood, which is negated by adolescence, which is negated by the youth, and so on, until it reaches adulthood. And at this point, it can produce an offspring, which becomes its new fundamental manifestation. And the point is that the full development of each of these stages inevitably results in the decline of that stage and its necessary negation. I'll, 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 say, I'll explain what that means. So the, the, the fetus is negated by the baby. The, the full development of, of the child means the end of childhood and the entrance into adolescence. And the fully developed youth is no longer a youth either, it's transitioning into adulthood. Each stage negates the previous one, which means that it on the one hand replaces it, and yet it preserves the essential parts of it and builds on them. Um, and, you know, so, so what, we, what we know as adults is in, to a large extent based on what we learned as, as, as children and youth. And finally, this process reaches its end in adulthood, which is at the same time the beginning of, of the decline and eventual death of human beings. But while individual people uh, die, humanity continues through our children. And it could seem that the, the child is just a return to the beginning of this, this process. But this is a big... 
but this is a return to the to the beginning on a higher level because the ideas and achievements of each generation become the starting point of the next one so that for instance the ideas that we're discussing today are the highest achievements of all of humanity coming before us and they can and they're, and they're determined by those achievements and just like we see the development of individual human beings humanity as a whole also goes through a series of stages which are impelled by its own inner contradictions now marx and engels explained that the fundamental driving uh, principle of history was the struggle for the production and reproduction of life you know people need to eat and with drink they need to have a you know a warm place to to sleep and in order to do that we learn to manipulate nature and to develop tools to to improve our ability to manipulate nature now for the majority of human history uh there was no such thing as classes or kings and oppressive state apparatuses it was a classless society but this was on the basis of extreme backwardness and extremely hard hard conditions in other words it was on the basis of a constant struggle for survival now at a certain stage however through the development of agriculture for the first time we we could develop enough products so i would produce enough i meant <laughs> um so that so that at least the minority of humans did not have to live in these desperate barbaric conditions of course this was not anywhere near enough to liberate all of humanity from barbarism which is why this became the 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 fundamental contradiction leading to the rise of class society and we saw the development of small groups of people with ownership over the means of production which which formed into distinct classes which with interests which stand in opposition to the to the interests of the majority that's that's the rise of class society and of course class society is is connected with with enormous pain and suffering but it also freed up a, a certain layer of society uh from this struggle of for survival and it allowed them to dedicate their time to develop to the development of science and technique and and mankind's mastery over nature essentially now this was done in the interest of of one particular class in each uh, of each of each period but each advance in science and technique uh was the benefit was to the benefit of the whole of society now in class society as well just like in the uh, stages of human life the full development of each stage leads to its necessary downfall and negation by a new and higher stage going through different forms of slave societies feudal societies and finally capitalism at least in in a very broad and simplified manner that's the general course of of development and it's precisely within this capitalist this final capitalist stage that class society finds its fullest development because w- within a few hundred years capitalism has developed the productive forces more than any other pr- period uh, in the, in the entirety of human history for the first time science and technique and industry has has reached a stage where we could easily satisfy all of the basic needs of society and at the same time within capitalism class society itself has been kind of distilled into its essence 
with the world increasingly divided in two opposing classes. The working class, which produces all of the wealth and owns nothing but its ability to work, and the capitalist class, which owns all of the property, property and lives off the fruit of the labor of the working class. And once this development has reached its full potential, the survival of the system itself becomes incompatible with the interests of the majority of human society. And this is the main contradiction behind the development of capitalist society. And the only way to resolve it is via revolution. A revolution which can wrest the ownership of the productive uh, uh, means of production from this parasitic group and place them in the hands of the, of the propertyless majority. And here we also find the ultimate purpose of class society itself. Because by developing the, the productive forces, by, by developing production in other words, to this, to this level, it lays the basis for its own negation by a communist classless society where no one will have to struggle to survive. And this is in a sense a return to the classless society of early humans. But of course, it's on, it's on a far higher level. And that's the, that's the necessary purpose that class society itself has, 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 uh, has had. You know, as uh, Hegel put it in very beautiful ways. Oh. <laughs> so as Hegel put it in a very beautiful way, um, it's not from bondage uh, that mankind frees itself. It's through bondage. So, uh, uh, and I would say, well, now we, we've reached the, the end of our journey, so to say. Not just our journey through the human history, but also our discussion about the truth. Because a true idea is precisely something that, that uh, encompasses the totality of this development. It is, a, is an idea that not only has the concrete totality of all of the relations of a phenomenon, but also one that understands how these necessarily lead it through a series of stages before, they f before it reaches its full development. And it's only by understanding this full development that I, our ideas can become true. Not because we say so, but because that's how the world objectively works. And therefore, of course, this cannot be an abstract formula that we try to drag on to, to, to the real world. It's a concrete development that we can only understand by following it in its living movement wherever we're looking. So is there an absolute truth? Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that everything in principle is knowable. No, because our universe is infinite and we will never know everything about it. What we know today is absolute in the sense that it's the ultimate result of human knowledge so far. But tomorrow it'll become a relative truth in a higher form of knowledge. And at each stage, things that are unknown to us will become known to us. And it's in this infinite process from lower to higher forms of thought that we find the actually existing absolute truth. And it's also through this process that we see another turn of quantity into quality. And what, because what are objective laws of nature become subjective concepts for us. I, we, begin, we understand them. And the subjective factor, which is us, become a factor in the objective world through our, uh, our activities. Once we understand the underlying laws of nature and society, we ourselves can become a factor within them. And in, and, and in fact, when it comes to the socialist revolution, that is a necessary prerequisite for, for, for victory. Marx and Engels explained in the Communist Manifesto that all previous revolutions were carried out in an unconscious or semi-conscious manner. 
because they were in the interest of the minority, i.e. it was a new ruling class trying to replace an old ruling class. But that doesn't apply to the proletarian revolution, which they say uh, must be the self-conscious independent movement of the majority in the interest of the majority. And our movement is naturally the, the movement of truth, because the truth is that capitalism as the highest expression of class society itself has outplayed its role. And its downfall is the first step, not only for the liberation of the working class from exploitation, but also the liberation of mankind from generalized misery and ignorance. And it's precisely the understanding that socialism is not only possible, but that it's also a historically, but it is also historically necessary that convinces us to dedicate our lives to it. And at the same time, gives us the confidence and determination to struggle until the final victory. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the International Marxist Tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.